This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. The strange but true story featured on this podcast contains details some people may find unsettling. Listener discretion is advised. I'm Chaya Samuel and things are about to get weird. Hi there, welcome back to another episode of Things Are About To Get Weird. If this is your first time listening, this is a podcast dedicated to some of the strangest stories you're ever likely to hear. You can expect twists and turns, bizarre coincidences, and tales that I'm sure will stick with you long after you've listened to the episodes. From true crime and unsolved mysteries to wild life stories and unexplained phenomena, if you love all things weird, you are in the right place, my friend. Today, I'm going to be telling you the genuinely shocking story of Thierry Tilly, a con man who operated one of the most mind-boggling scams I've ever heard of. I truly can't believe that this hasn't been turned into a documentary by one of the major streaming platforms yet. I'm serious, if any documentary producers happen to be listening to this episode, here's an idea on me. We're heading to France for this episode, so please do accept my apologies in advance for some of my pronunciations. I promise I'm trying my best. But that said, let's get into the story. I feel like scammers are having an odd moment in the spotlight right now. We've had the series about Anna Delvey, the documentary about the Tinder swindler, shows about Elizabeth Holmes, and I feel like each story gets weirder and more convoluted than the last. I know I have definitely been sucked into all of these stories and have gone down rabbit hole after rabbit hole, wanting to not only try and understand what led these people to embark on these elaborate, fraudulent paths, but what kept them going to the extents that they did. When I came across the scam artist that we'll be talking about today and I started researching what he did, I honestly couldn't believe what I was reading at times. So allow me to introduce you to Thierry Tilly. He was born in 1964 in an area around 5.6 miles northwest of Paris called Bois-Colombe, which translates as Dove Woods, which I thought was very poetic. There isn't a huge amount of information available about Thierry's early life, which is quite a common theme with people involved in cons and scams, I tend to find anyway. A couple of things we do know is that Thierry studied law, but he dropped out before he finished his degree. He also married a woman called Jessica Dina or Dana at some point, and although they were together at the time of this story, I couldn't find any concrete evidence around whether they're still together today. At the time our story begins, Thierry was described as being bespectacled with a raspy voice, a pale complexion, and an intimidatingly strong handshake. Honestly, I think he looks exactly like Bill Gates. They are so similar looking. When you see a picture of Thierry, 
you would honestly think you were looking at a picture of Bill Gates from the 90s. It's quite weird. From everything I've read, it seemed that Thierry was a very good networker. He seemed to know a lot of people who would then introduce him to others, and a number of these connections look to be pretty high profile. For example, according to a 2010 Vanity Fair article, Thierry was an associate of Hughes Gosset, who's the heir to the Gosset Champagne House, which is actually the oldest wine house in Champagne, being founded in 1584, which I thought was pretty cool. Anyway, Hughes Gosset then introduced Thierry to a lawyer called Vincent David. Now, Vincent David is important in this story for a couple of reasons. Firstly, he gives us an insight into what Thierry was allegedly up to just before the main scam we'll be talking about today. In the Vanity Fair article, it was said that Thierry had hired Vincent David to do some legal work for a real estate venture he was working on, but he never paid him. He did, however, promise Vincent part ownership of the project, but never came through on the offer. This is what is alleged in the article. As far as I know, this never went to court, so I have to say that it's only alleged. So there's that. But secondly, and most crucially to this story, during the late 1990s, Vincent was the person who introduced Thierry to the first member of the family at the heart of this wild tale, Jelaine Davidrines. I'm going to give you a brief overview of the Davidrines family because I think to understand the scale of this scam, it's important to know exactly what life was like for them pre-Thierry, if you will. Picture an old French aristocratic family living in a grand chateau complete with a huge round tower, turrets, stunning grounds and massive rooms for hosting elaborate parties. That was the Davidrines. They weren't just people who'd done well in business and had been able to buy themselves this grand gorgeous home, they were genuine old aristocratic money. And they were proud of it too. It seemed that they really relished their noble status, even though the glory days of French aristocratic society were long gone. Their home was called Chateau Martel and it was located near the ancient village of Montflancan. I am so sorry to any French listeners, which is in the southwest of France, about 100 miles from Bordeaux. There are 11 members or extended members of the family who are involved in today's story, but I'm going to focus on just a few of them today so things don't get too complicated. So we have Ghislaine, who was in her 50s and running a secretarial school in Paris when this story begins. Her then-husband, Jean Marchand. Her brothers, Philippe, who was a Shell oil executive. And Charles-Henri, who was a gynaecologist, as well as Charles-Henri's wife, Christine. And the matriarch of the family, Guillemette, who was in her late 80s. The other members are the partners and children of those family members, but I've already thrown a lot of names at you, so don't worry, I won't add any more into the mix right now. So the year is 1999. After being introduced to each other by Vincent David, the lawyer from earlier, Ghislaine Davidrines had hired Thierry Tilly to carry out various tasks at the secretarial school that she ran in Paris. It was actually the top school of its kind in the city, and these tasks included things like setting up the school's new computer system, for example. For the first year of his employment, it didn't seem like Ghislaine paid Thierry all that much attention, but by 1999, all of that had changed. He was no longer just a handy, jack-of-all-trades member of staff. Seemingly out of nowhere, he had become the school's highest paid employee and Ghislaine's closest and most trusted colleague. 
It was also around this time that she first introduced Thierry to her family and her family home. And at first, he really worked hard to present himself as a true friend to the family. Charles-Henri later said that at the beginning, Thierry had said that he wanted to look after their home investments and trusts. He said they had always used professionals for these kinds of things, as you would expect, but Thierry managed to convince them that he could do a better job at protecting these assets and dealings, which were obviously very important to the family. Now, you're probably thinking, why on earth would they trust this near stranger who spends the rest of his time installing computer systems at a school with these incredibly important and confidential financial tasks? Well, like most con men, Thierry was an excellent liar. According to investigators, Thierry had made some pretty bold claims about his own family status. He said he was descended from the Austro-Hungarian Habsburg nobility and that his grandmother had held gatherings attended by former socialist president Francois Mitterrand. The Davidrines were really drawn to Thierry's talk about all of the people he knew and connections he had in high society. Plus, he told them he'd been involved in some lucrative money-making endeavours too. Thierry initially made himself very popular with the Davidrine siblings by complimenting and flattering them. For example, he'd tell Philippe he should be the president of Shell Oil, not just an executive, and he'd tell them all he saw greatness in them. It seems like he was basically on a massive charm offensive. It wasn't long before the family had really started to fall under his spell. In particular, he apparently convinced Philippe and Charles-Henri that he knew of investment deals that could produce incredible returns, and the brothers ended up putting a lot of financial trust in Thierry. Now, I'm sure at this point you might be thinking, Chayas, this is a podcast called Things Are About To Get Weird, and it sounds like this is going to be your run-of-the-mill financial scam. But my friends, this story is about to take some turns worthy of a Hollywood movie, one that stars Tom Hanks as a university professor of symbology, for example, if you get my drift. Between 1999 and 2001, Thierry Tilly's hold on the family intensified dramatically. Perhaps it was that he'd only got so far trying to influence them with affection and friendship and compliments, or perhaps it was simply time for the next stage of his plan. But Thierry switched gears and decided he was going to try and control the family using fear. It started with him speculating that there was a Masonic group trying to get their hands on the very valuable land that Ghislaine's secretarial school occupied. Now, this wasn't a possibility that was completely outlandish because it's believed that the Freemasons do have a large presence in the Parisian real estate world. So this nugget of context made the idea feel very real to the family. Before long, Thierry was able to convince them that the Freemasons were so determined to acquire this land that their lives could actually be at risk. This idea really took hold of Ghislaine and according to her ex-husband Jean Marchand, she became completely paranoid, suspecting people around her of being Freemasons and becoming very distrustful of anyone outside of her immediate circle. During the same time period, the head teacher at the secretarial school noticed that large sums of money were starting to go missing from the school's bank account, and some of their bills had stopped being paid altogether. 
By March 2001, the school had also stopped paying most of their staff too, and the head teacher remembers how Ghislaine was very clearly in a bad way. She'd lost a lot of weight, she wore sunglasses even when she was inside, and she'd started warning staff to look out for Freemasons. Thierry was behaving increasingly strangely as well. For example, when anyone asked what line of work he'd previously been in, he would answer with one word, espionage, and then point blank refuse to discuss it any further, saying he wasn't allowed to. He'd also make a show of receiving these very secretive phone calls and would talk in hushed tones and dramatically leave the room to speak to the person he called my president. Now, whilst all of this is happening and the paranoia within the family is building, they're also preparing for the wedding of Ghislaine and John's daughter, which was planned for the 1st of September 2001. Whilst Ghislaine was entirely under Thierry's thumb at this point, her then-husband John had grown incredibly sceptical and distrustful of him. But to help keep the peace, especially ahead of the wedding, he had said very little about it. The wedding day was a complete success and Jean remembers that he didn't actually see Thierry present at the wedding at all, which I'm sure he was probably very happy about considering all of the scepticism he had about him. But shortly afterwards, on the 7th of September, everything changed for Jean. According to him, on the afternoon of the 7th, he was sat in his summer house when Ghislaine stormed in, dressed in a cocktail dress, and was holding a handful of dried flowers. She'd been at the school in Paris, so he was quite surprised to see her. She then threw the flowers into his face before reciting a speech that made almost no sense to him. It was as if she was reading a script that had been written by someone else and that she had learnt. She said that the flowers were a sign of Jean's, quote, evil network, and he claims Philippe and Charles-Henri then grabbed him, gave him half an hour to pack his belongings and put him on a train headed for Paris. However, a few weeks later, he was able to sneak back into the summer house in an attempt to work out what on earth was going on with his family. He found Ghislaine's computer and on it was an email from Thierry. The email included the instructions to, quote, throw the flowers and the glove at him. Tell him that these are the signs of his evil network. Give him half an hour to pack. Hmm. Not long after this, and pretty unsurprisingly, to be honest, Ghislaine's secretarial school shut down completely. I mean, they had unpaid bills, unpaid staff. There was no way they could really function anymore. Now, earlier in 2001, Thierry had actually moved into the school building and was living there. He'd also introduced a new player into the growing narrative that he was feeding the family, a man named Jacques Gonzalez, who he said was not only the head of an incredibly powerful global secret network, but the cousin of the Spanish king. At one point, Thierry locked down the school as Jacques Gonzalez was visiting and, I assume, security needed to be tight. Anyway, with the school now closed and Ghislaine's husband banished to Paris, she and her brother Philippe and Philippe's partner all moved into the school with Thierry. It's really not known exactly why, but I imagine it was all part of Thierry's plan to keep them under his control, keep them close by. Ghislaine was on the top floor and had no heat, light or running water. Imagine living in a grand chateau and then switching to conditions like that. To me, it just 
really shows how much power Thierry must have had over her. It wasn't until Christmas that year that they all moved out of the school and back to the chateau. By the end of 2001, the family had almost completely cut themselves off from the outside world and were effectively quarantined inside Chateau Martel. As I say, there were 11 members of the De Verdrines family living in the home and they had very little to do with anyone on the outside, with the exception of Thierry Tilly, of course. At this point, the whole family were convinced that the Freemasons were out to kill them and that Thierry was the only person who could protect them. Now, this is just my personal opinion, but I do wonder whether part of the reason why Thierry was able to convince the family that this plot was being formed against them and that their lives were in danger is because they were this old aristocratic family living in an increasingly modern world. They may have already felt that their way of life was in some way threatened by the way that society was evolving and I wonder whether that made them more susceptible to believing what Thierry was telling them. This is just purely my thought, but maybe they were already feeling quite vulnerable and they were expecting that at some point something was going to try and infiltrate the way that they were living. And this idea fit the bill in a way. Now at this time, Philippe de Vedrine's ex-wife had begun divorce proceedings against him and as part of this, an audit into his finances was being done. This audit started to shine a light on some very suspicious activity involving unusual transfers of Philippe's money to a holding company called Presswell Enterprises Limited. And who should be one of the officers of this company but Mr Thierry Tilly himself. Shock. Now, this is where things amp up a level, in my opinion. I think that these financial revelations spooked Thierry and he went full send on locking the family away from outside influences. He banned clocks and calendars from Chateau Martel, convincing them that the concept of time simply didn't apply to them anymore. Members of the family sold their homes and gave the money that they got directly to Thierry. They left their businesses and friends and Ghislaine and John's daughter, who just got married, even left her husband to rejoin her family in barricading themselves in the chateau, handing over her money to Thierry when she arrived. According to the family's lawyer, Thierry was using complex brainwashing techniques to keep control of the family, keeping them in darkened rooms and pitting them against each other. He had completely convinced the family that they were, get this, descendants of an ancient group called the Balance of the World, which was all tied to the Knights Templar, and that they were this vital link that must be protected at all costs. By 2003, the family had stopped paying taxes and this became a pivotal moment in this story because before long, they were being investigated by the French equivalent of the Inland Revenue and the furnishings in the chateau were actually auctioned off to help pay this bill. As the chateau was now empty, they decided to move into a home owned by Philippe. At this time, it's thought that the matriarch of the family had given a huge loan to Ghislaine, Philippe and Charles-Henri. And according to the Vanity Fair article, it's assumed the money actually ended up with Thierry. Now, there are very few details known about exactly what happened to Thierry or the family for the three years following this move. However, once 2006 rolls around, this story once again shifts up a gear and gets stranger than ever. 
So at this point, Thierry and his wife, and apparently two children, but it's very difficult to find any information about his own family, they were actually living in Oxford in the UK. He'd run into some legal troubles in France, which had led to him being banned from managing a company for 10 years. So he'd moved to the UK to get away from all of the legal entanglements he was involved with in France. The year before, Charles-Henri and Christine de Verdrine's son had actually moved over to live with Thierry, and by 2007, Thierry had persuaded most members of the family to move to a series of rental properties he'd secured for them in Oxford, with a couple of notable exceptions being Jelaine and Philippe, who were still in France. Now that he'd moved members of the family away from their home, he began to exert his power and control over the family in whole new ways. In Oxford, Thierry made the family get jobs as cleaners and gardeners or jobs in fast food restaurants, and he would take the majority of their earnings and keep the money for himself. One of the children of the family said, quote, all my money I gave to him. I couldn't buy a Mars bar. That was seen as theft from the family. I couldn't have friends and I couldn't have girlfriends. We were really in our own world. Don't forget, the family were completely convinced that they were part of this sacred group and Thierry would remind them of it constantly in private to keep them focused and keep up this magic and mystery that he'd cultivated with them for years and years. Now, whilst the family were in Oxford, things got incredibly rough for one member in particular, Charles-Henri's wife, Christine. Whilst all of the family members were being controlled in terms of what food they ate each day, for example, Thierry's treatment of Christine was something else. He thought that Christine was keeping money from him, more on that in a second, and he ended up keeping her locked in a room in one of the rented houses, giving her only tea, bread and biscuits to eat if he gave her a meal at all. Now, as I say, this is rough, but Thierry insisted that Christine knew the number of a bank account that held the treasures of the Knights Templar, and she says that he kept her locked in a room for months, and she was violently abused and beaten as she could not provide this key to the lost fortune. I mean, it's next level sick in my opinion, because he knew she couldn't have the number because it didn't exist. However, because Christine herself was so convinced by Thierry, as were the other members of the family, she believed the number did exist and she just couldn't remember it. I can't imagine the mental torture she must have gone through with that. There's a quote from Christine. She said, In Oxford, I lost my spirit. It was the first time I thought of suicide. Thierry had convinced the rest of the family that Christine must know this bank account number because the meaning of her maiden name translated to transmission of metals. So in his mind, she was clearly the gateway to the treasure. According to Vanity Fair, at one point, Christine was taken to Brussels and walked up and down the streets to visit different banks. At each one, she tried to remember this imaginary account number and access the mythical fortune. And obviously, every bank she goes to, she's denied every time. It's so messed up, it almost makes me believe that Thierry had at some point fallen for his own story and started to believe himself. I don't know, that's just me speculating, but it's just so odd the extents that he went to with Christine. As this awful abuse of Christine was taking place, Thierry was making another huge move in his plan. 
By this time, he had almost all of the family's assets. They'd been transferred to him in one form or another over the years. It seems like relationships within the family had started to implode. There were major rifts between various members and allegedly even a domestic disturbance at Philippe's home in France. The source of these rifts seemed to be the suggestion that Chateau Martel should be sold to a holding company in order to help with the soaring debts the family were facing. According to a BBC News article, Thierry had convinced the family that it was too dangerous for them to keep the home, and regardless of the huge upset this caused, the chateau was sold during the autumn of 2008. However, Charles-Henri, who was the legal owner of the home after inheriting it from his father, later said he was actually tricked into selling the property. He's quoted as saying, When the lawyer told me I almost fell off my chair, I thought I was signing for a loan. I would never have knowingly sold Martel. I wasn't in my right mind, but I wouldn't have agreed to sell my family home. My and my children's heritage. I will fight to my dying day to get it back. The BBC News article stated that, in total, Thierry convinced the family to sell seven properties for around €5 million, and they have not seen the proceeds. Now, at this point, I just wanted to mention something that was discussed a lot in the Vanity Fair article, but nowhere else that I could find, so I'm not entirely sure what to make of it. But there was a lot of discussion in the article about the alleged involvement of Charles-Henri and Christine's son in a lot of the financial side of things, as it's alleged that he worked as Thierry's personal assistant, but honestly, because of the nature of the story and the control that we know Thierry had over the family, I don't think I want to get into it too deeply. It's very confusing. So how could this broken brainwashed and now near penniless family hoped to escape from this person who'd infiltrated their lives and completely convinced them that they were part of an ancient order so effectively that they traded their lives as aristocrats in France for minimum wage jobs and living under house arrest in England. The answer comes in the form of a cheese shop owner from Oxford known as Baron Bobby. Now, Baron Bobby's real name is Robert. It's Robert Pouget, I hope. And he actually employed Christine to work in the kitchen of his shop after she was released from confinement by Thierry. The pair seemed to get on really well and they would actually speak French to each other, which is the thing that first sparked Robert's confusion as Christine had a very high society way of speaking. In the spring of 2009, after asking more and more questions and pushing Christine to reveal more about her life story, she completely broke down. She told Baron Bobby everything, and when she was talking about aspects like being the key and not being able to remember the bank code to the account with the treasure in, he realised how deeply under Thierry's control she was. Robert had actually met Thierry and said... I immediately sensed this chap wasn't right. A drip-dry suit, cheap clothes. I thought, this is not a big financier. Robert actually helped to smuggle Christine back to France, where she met with the man who would go on to become the family's lawyer. And his name is Daniel Picotin. He had actually had some dealings with the family in the past, and he was already suspicious of some of Thierry's activities. The lawyer helped Christine to visit the relevant authorities once she was back in France, and she began to tell her story. This lawyer is known for being very 
anti-cult, which I'm sure most of us are, to be honest, but it was part of his reputation in the legal world. And obviously this was gonna be very useful knowledge for him to have when looking at this case. This was very much the start of Thierry's downfall. Philippe had already distanced himself from Thierry back in 2008 and I imagine with family members starting to lose their connection to him and with Christine now in France telling her story, it was inevitable that he could not continue on with his antics much longer. A European warrant for his arrest was issued and after Thierry took a flight to Zurich in October of 2009, he was apprehended and arrested at the airport on arrival. The list of what he was charged with on his arrest is actually pretty chilling. It was fraud, imprisonment accompanied by acts of barbarism and torture, extortion of funds and abuse of weakness. Jacques Gonzalez, the mysterious supposed head of the secret order that I mentioned before, he was also arrested and charged with fraud and abuse of weakness. Remember when I said that Thierry would take mysterious and dramatic phone calls in front of the family and would call someone my president? It's alleged that those calls were from Jacques Gonzalez, or at least that's what Thierry would say. At his trial in 2012 in Bordeaux, unsurprisingly, Thierry denied everything. He did, however, try to tell the court that he was a descendant of the Habsburgs and once almost played football for Marseille. Okay then. Outside the court, Ghislaine spoke to the press and said, quote, he's a liar and a storyteller. I know very well how he tries to get the upper hand, except here he's in front of professionals, which wasn't the case when he was with us. He kidnapped us, telling one of us one thing and another something else and set us against one another. Jean Marchand commented that the man has made a career out of mental manipulation. In the end, Thierry Tilly was found guilty of false imprisonment and abusing the weakness of psychologically vulnerable persons and was sentenced to eight years in jail. And Jacques Gonzalez was sentenced to four years as an accomplice. During sentencing, the court said that Thierry had created a state of submission among his victims and had encouraged group paranoia and mental destabilisation. So what happened to the family after all of this? They were obviously in a complete mess financially and there was a large amount of unpaid rent left on the houses in Oxford. They had given Thierry everything. And according to a BBC News article, by 2013, members of the family, including Charles-Henri and Christine, were now living in social housing in the southwest of France. Charles-Henri said, he stole 10 years of our lives, but he did more than that. He destroyed everything on the way. One positive though, it does seem that once Thierry had been arrested and later imprisoned and was completely out of the picture, some of the massive rifts within the family started to repair. Their lawyer, Daniel Picotin, made huge moves to gather together the members of the family who were still in Oxford after Jean Marchand had expressed a worry that they may attempt mass suicide, similar to what happened at Jonestown in 1978. He was obviously incredibly concerned and it seems that this mission was successful and it was said that the family had been, quote, saved and had all renounced Thierry and his control over them. I have tried and tried to decipher and understand exactly what happened to the money once Thierry was jailed, but it's incredibly difficult to find any information on this case post-2013. An article that I found from The Guardian simply says that the money was supposedly invested by Thierry and has now 
disappeared into the offshore ether, which I think is probably the best way of putting it. As far as we know, many of the family members have been quietly rebuilding their lives, returning to work and trying to deal with what happened to them in that decade. Obviously, the financial side is one part of it, but the mental effects of what happened to them, I don't really know how you'd start to deal with that. A decade is such a long time to be under another person's control. Christine actually went on to write a book about her experiences and other members of the family contributed their sides of the story too. I wanted to end this episode with a couple of quotes from Christine. She told The Observer, I heard someone on the radio talking about us and saying we were cultured, educated, intelligent and this should have armed us against Tilly. But it didn't. We were simply not armed to deal with someone who lied on such an extraordinary scale. Maybe we were naive, but we were not used to another human being lying to us, tricking us. We did not expect it. Thierry Tilly was a bad person, a predator, a vampire, and we were like puppets, unable to stop him. He was very clever. It was almost as if we were hypnotised. Well, I kind of feel like my head is spinning after that. I hope you found this case as fascinating as I did. This is one of those cases that you could absolutely dive even deeper into and I definitely encourage you to do so if you found this interesting. As always, I wanted to give a shout out to the sources that helped me to put this episode together. That Vanity Fair article from 2010 by Michael Joseph Gross, which I'd highly recommend reading. There was a BBC News article from February 2013 and two pieces from The Guardian, one from September 2012 and the other from August 2013. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price line. This is one of those stories that the more I researched it, the more it blew my mind because I'd get to a certain point in learning about the story and I'd have to really stop myself and look back and think, how is this happening? Like the level of control that he had over this family was next level. I think it's probably one of those classic cases of, to look at this from the outside, you'd think, how would anybody believe that they could be part of this ancient order or linked to the Knights Templar? But you've got to remember that this was an aristocratic family. This probably wouldn't have sounded completely bizarre to them that they were part of something very ancient. That was what they'd always known. This is just my personal opinion, but perhaps that's exactly why Thierry targeted them in that very specific way. Anyway, I would love to know what you think about this story. Please send me all of your thoughts, all of your reactions. You can email me at thingsgetweirdpodcast at gmail.com. You can get in touch on Instagram. I've made a separate Instagram for the podcast. It's at thingsgetweirdpodcast. And then on Twitter, it's just at about to get weird. I wanted to take a quick moment to say a huge thank you to everyone who has been so supportive of the podcast so far. 
We've ended up on the Apple and Spotify true crime podcast charts, which has absolutely blown my mind. So if you would like to help us climb even further up the charts and you've enjoyed this episode, please do leave me a rating and review wherever you listen. It really does help. Until next time, take care of yourself and others and keep it weird, but the good kind of weird. Thank you.